Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Laura? I'm tired after our shopping foray yesterday. How are you? Oh, for heaven's sake. (laughs) (laughs) I'm invigorated. What else do you need to buy? (laughs) No, I'm fine. I had fun. I had a lot of fun, too. For those of you who do not understand that Kate is really a professional personal shopper, that's your that's your real calling. I tell that's you. my real calling. <laughs> and Kate was kind enough to join me yesterday and help me with wedding shopping for my son's wedding. I got a great dress for the wedding and for the rehearsal dinner, and my daughter was there with us. We had a, and Tyler and his fiancée, and we had a really, really fun day. And so thank you, personal shopper extraordinaire, Kate Hensler. And we got two great dresses and shoes to match, so that was very successful. <laughs> Did you see Tyler's expression when I when he said, where's Kate, and I said she's at the jewelry, you know, when we were oh, finished no, with I the shoes? <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> and then we also went as they finalized the grooms and the groomsmen, what they're wearing. So it was a fun day. Thank you again. We had a great time. I enjoyed it. Pleasure to be a part of it. And I don't think that's the reason I'm tired today. I've been up since 4 o'clock. That's probably got a little bit more to do with it. What do you think? I think so. Just woke up early for no reason. woke up early for no reason. We have lots going on, so I think that's all it is. Just, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of jolt yourself awake and can't really go back to sleep. But that's okay. I, I answered. Do you get that? I get that, yes. Yes, that has been that kind of day. So we'll see how I'm holding up into hour 14 or 15 of my day as we do the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure I can rally and make it. All right, before we get going tonight, let me, <coughs> excuse me, I always now it's kind of a thing I do is I get on the podcast and think I'm going to have a coughing attack like a couple of weeks ago. Sorry about that. I think that's more psychotic than anything else. (laughs) Um, Johnny's shaking and said, yes, and you are laughing, so that must be what it is. Before we get going, uh, I want to mention that part two of the series I started last week in Therapy Tip of the Week is posted about pretend play and how to start that and get that going and toddlers who seem to have no interest in that and for whom pretend play is not emerging naturally. And I wanted to be sure to say one thing. A lot of people, and I'm, I think I said this on the on the video clip last week for Therapy Tip of the Week, but I want to be sure that I say it here. So many people talk about pretend play and how can I get a kid to pretend play, but they start well above where they should be with the kid. They'll they'll like maybe start with a tea party and have them feeding imaginary friends or they'll be over at the the Fisher Price kitchen trying to prepare elaborate meals and those kinds of things. And again, just start well above where they should when they're thinking about pretend play with a toddler or they'll say They'll really go pretty symbolic and pretend, you know, like a like an object is something else. And a lot of times when I see that, I'll think, the, the child you're working with doesn't understand what the first object is, let alone <laughs> mm-hmm. what you want it to be. And so I just really want to caution parents and therapists as you're thinking about pretend play and thinking about introducing that. And you start with the basics and you start with really simple objects that a child already uses in his daily routines and things that should be pretty familiar and you move forward because a kid has to have that concrete foundation before he's ready to move forward and and really do more advanced things or sometimes (coughs) excuse me a parent will say something like if the kid is pushing the shopping cart and it's I mean it's a fine thing for them to start to say you know where are you going or where are you pretending you're going are you going to the doctor's office and I think whoa, why don't we just say bye-bye? Why don't we just say she's going bye-bye? <laughs> Have you seen that happen before? 
Yes, I have. Yeah, and so I really wanted to just make sure that I've said that as many times as necessary to really push that idea that you have to start with concrete and you have to meet a kid where he is, even with pretend play, and that starts at a very concrete, basic, easy level for a kid and not... Um, not where you want them to be or where even where you think he should be for his age. You've got to really meet him where he is cognitively. And for our little friends with language delays, a lot of times their cognition is delayed as well. And certainly there are receptive language delays. So if you're talking about an object, you need to be darn sure that they have a better understanding of what that is. And there's no real way to do that without the real object there in front of you and talking about it as you play so that you're sure that the kid is linking meaning with what words you're using. So just wanted to bring that up. I think I mentioned it a little bit in the video, but that's kind of been bugging me. And two, based on the comments that I'm and the emails I'm getting from people who've watched it, Therapy Tip of the Week has been so successful and I always get great feedback on it. But sometimes I think, whoa, you need to go back and listen to that again. <laughs> or I think you missed the one sentence that would have made all of this make more sense to you. So I just wanted to clarify that because I do think it's something people miss a lot. I do too. I mean, it would be great if you could just kind of put it out there and they would absorb it or rise to that occasion, but really there is definitely a limit to what kids understand and you might bump it up a tiny bit, but you cannot go from zero to 50 by being so creative with your play scheme that they don't have a clue what you're talking about. Right, or trying to pretend like what the doctor said with a kid who can't give a baby doll a drink from, you know, a pretend drink from a cup or a bite from a spoon, and mom's got the doctor set out trying to play doctor. And mm -hmm. I think, whoa, when's the last time he was here? Gosh, let's see, it's summer, and that was probably back in the winter. And guess what? He didn't feel all that great when he went. So yeah. <laughs> he didn't doesn't have any recollection or any real experience to base that on and certainly not enough language for mom to be talking about pretending to be the doctor. You be the doctor. And I think, whoa, let's start with cup. Give baby a drink. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I see that a lot. All right. Tonight, do you have anything else to say before we get going? No. What's our topic? good. All right. We are going to do the show that we intended to do last week and we're happily... Um, redirected when our caller called in last week, and we always love to hear from callers. So, But tonight we're going to pick up with talking about a 2006 study, and it was by Dr. Katie Alcock. Now, she is not a speech pathologist. She's a psychologist in England at, I would say, Lancaster University, but I'm sure they say Lancaster. What do you think? What's, what I do you would think say Lancaster. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but they probably say it differently than we do. And so she did a study in 2006 and linked some very specific motor movements and cognitive movements and some even a little imitation is thrown in there and said that children who could do these things at 21 months of age also had better language skills than their peers who were the same age who could not perform these same skills or exhibit these same skills. <clears throat> and it's really, really interesting. And I happened to find this article when I was on Twitter, and two speech pathologists were discussing it, kind of had a little back and forth of a turn or two. And they were talking about how interesting they thought the study was. And when I read it, I have to say that it made a whole lot of sense to me. And, Kate, we've talked about this a little bit. When you took a look at the study and the three skills that we're talking about that were predictive of early language ability, were you surprised by that? Or no, not, not at surprised? all. Yeah, mm -hmm. me either. So the three things are, I know that we have listeners who are probably walking and exercising right now and lifting their next weight, or our, <laughs> our listeners who, who clean while they're doing this while you're scrubbing away. 
I'm sure you're probably wondering, what are the three things? Laura, tell us, tell us. So I won't make you wait any longer for the teaser, but the three skills that were most closely linked to language ability in 21-month-olds were children who could lick their lips, and again, that would be an imitation skill. And so the examiner said to them, lick your lips or do this. I'm not sure in this study if they, if we have the specific wording of what they used, and actually I don't even think that really matters. But kids who could lick their lips, kids who could blow bubbles, and kids that could pretend that a block was a car were most likely to find learning language easier. And they measured this by also doing a language sample so that they, let's see what it says. It says, they assessed spontaneous speech in a familiar place. That the researchers recorded everything said by children and the person looking after them, which is a language sample, during a half-hour free play session in a child's home. And then they analyzed those utterances in terms of the range of words produced and the length of the sentences. And so they looked at that, and again, that's what they that's their language measure they used. <clears throat> they also looked at some other skills. We'll get to that in a minute. But the first things they looked at, licking their lips, blow, blowing bubbles, and pretending that a block is a car. And again, I think about licking their lips as an oral motor skill, and really probably even more important than that, it would be an imitation skill. And so kids who were not great at imitating certainly couldn't do that. Our little friends who are not great with social referencing and social engagement probably couldn't lick their lips. How many kids have you seen on the spectrum, Kate, who were great at imitating you licking your lips? Uh, not many. Certainly not in the yeah. beginning. I will say that that's at something that months. sometimes, yeah. yeah, 21 months, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think the reason they use 21 months here, that age range is significant because that's when most typically developing children are having their language explosions. And when we talk about typical development, we know that the average kid who is developing typically has 50 words at 18 months. And for those of you who are speech pathologists and developmental inter interventionists who are listening to this and going, oh, 18 months, she said that wrong. It's 24 months. It's 24 months when you need 50 words. Remember how you're using your milestones here. <laughs> at 24 months, we're looking at the very bottom end of normal, the very last rung of normal <laughs> for when you can say that a child is within typical limits. And at 24 months, 50 words is the bottom. 50 words is down there, you know, at the 10th percentile and maybe even a little lower for for kids who are 24 months. So the average 18-month-old, meaning right smack in the middle at the 50th percentile, has 50 words, and again, that's at 18 months. And that's the marker that I learned when I went to school about language development, that we wanted children to have 50 words by 18 months and be combining two-word phrases then. And that's when we were truly looking at normal and typical rather than the skewed way <laughs> that we look at it now, which is if we're going to qualify a kid for services or not. And I think so many people get really misuse that milestone. I talk about that a lot in my conference and in all of the therapy manuals that I've produced because I think it is that one milestone is so misused by the right. professionals. Yeah, and don't you hear doctors say that too? And doctors use it to, and again, I understand why a doctor would do that because they would want to, they would want to consider the full range of normal and not overqualify or alarm a parent before they really were should be alarmed. And so they're looking at, and this is also that whole boy-girl thing, you know, boys talk later, blah, blah, blah. And so they're accounting for that by, by looking at when that bottom tenth, those kids in that tenth percentile, and nobody wants to really think about their child in that range, but that's truly what that is. It's the very bottom end of normal. And so 
21 months, we would think with a typically developing kid, they already should be well on their way with using, uh, by the time a child turns two, that 24, at 24 months, they have two to 300 words if a kid is truly typically developing. So at 21 months, when they're really closing that gap between 50 words and 200 words. And that's when we typically talk about a kid having their language explosion. And I certainly remember that point with my children, who all happen to be pretty early talkers. Imagine that. And they that's so much fun at that point when they're really learning new words every single day when it's coming pretty easily. So I think they chose that age range, although it's not outlined in this article, but I bet if we, the article that I'm using is from sciencedaily.com, but I bet if we went back and looked at the study, it would say that that age was really on purpose that they were choosing that. Right. Do you have anything you want to add before we move on? Excuse me, I'm sorry, the I don't know that I really do. I would ask you this, and I don't know that you know the answer, Laura, but as far don't as ask you were concerned. What? I'm sorry. I said, then don't <laughs> ask me. Don't ask me. Well, <laughs> we're just kidding. kind of talking about it. So we're I just don't know talking. Um, as far as blowing bubbles versus licking your lips, I mean, you were kind of saying you looked at the licking the lips as more of just an imitative thing as much as it is an oral motor thing. Right. Would you, would you say the blowing bubbles is more looking at the oral motor? I think it kind of is, but, you know, when I think about blowing bubbles, that really, it is a coordination task. But for some kids, you you don't even have, wouldn't have to even model that. You could just stick the bubble wand up, and they would know what to do with it. Do you know what right. I mean? versus kids who are developmentally slower, what do they do with the bubble wand instead of blowing it? Eat it. Eat it! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not necessarily saying, eat the bubble, you know, eat. Of course mm. you're not going to say that. But I think that there would be no, there probably would ha- not have to be any kind of imitative portion of that to see if a kid could do it. Now, I think that's a pretty um, important indicator to look at that and certainly a child who's struggling developmentally at 21 months is not going to be able to blow bubbles. There are probably a fair number of typically developing kids who can't blow bubbles at 21 months. I don't remember when my own kids did that or when any typically developing kids that I've worked with. I've only really worked with my full range of kids. I don't. When I work with uh, kids at church, I always want the two-year-old room because that's where I feel like, oh boy, I can really get lots of information here. So I don't know that I've even done a ton of trying to blow bubbles with children who were younger than two. Have you? No, but kids. I mean, I've had kids like I see a little guy now who's 18 months be honest, I don't think he's all that delayed. But So, in other words, he's doing pretty well. Language-wise, right. he's a little delayed, but he can blow bubbles. Mm-hmm. And I think it would really let you know that they've had exposure to that activity, so some adult gives a rip about them and has played with them, and they know what bubbles are. Right. And receptive language and cognitively. They understand, they link meaning, and again, they can remember that activity and that automatic, reflexive, oh, I know what to do with this, so I'm just going to do it, thing that we see in children that are typically developing, and especially children that are precocious, you know, you don't really have to teach them a lot of things. They just seem to naturally understand. That's why when when those of us who work with children with delays see a kid who's just kind of normal, we think, oh, my gosh, he's a genius. You know, he's really talking. You know, he and a lot of therapists talk about this with their, you know, they have their own children and then they work with children with delays, whether they're in an early intervention program or in a school program, and then they have grandchildren and they are just convinced that even even though – even though they know, oh, my goodness, this kid is 
is, you know, normal, a t- uh, within the range of normal. But when you still see typical de- development unfold with how easy everything is to learn and how you don't really have to do so much teaching, you know, we do get so skewed in our perception so that when we see a kid who's doing pretty well, we do think, oh, my goodness, look how smart he or she is because you don't have to do all of the extra effort that it takes to get our little guys who are struggling um, for them to learn. And so I can imagine that if you saw an 18-month-old blow a bubble like you've seen, and even though he's on your caseload, I bet you're still thinking, boy, he's doing great. He's your star, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And really I think it was, well, if you really want to know what I think. Yeah, tell us why you're seeing that kid. I know you're dying too. <laughs> well, he was. Or has he just done by, well? He had a, no. I think he was doing pretty well from the beginning. As much as I would like to take credit, um, he was evaluated by a physical therapist, and he did kind of have a little bit of a gross motor delay. But I think it was more a case of him shutting down during the initial evaluation, and he and this PT isn't really. Uh, I think PT is her strength, even though she does a general evaluation. And I think the kid didn't really connect with her and didn't do much. Yeah. And so she had him scored down lower than he should have been, really. Because well, I'm but it was good. Hmm? I, I had rather a therapist overqualify than underqualify. What about you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because now he, that was, you know, he's 12 months. Well, now he's. 18 months, and he just had his 18 months check at the doctor's, and he's ordered a psych eval, and he's concerned about this and that, and I'm like, seriously, that he's doing well? Once again, he darn shut down. Oh, he does, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's really, and he's it doing is well. It's nice that those professionals, though, aren't, aren't, that they're going by what they see, right. and that they're not just blowing him off. And blow, right. he, how is his mom? Is his mom hyper concerned or no? Not really. She's oh she's, wow. She's on board with doing it, but she kind of uh-huh. says, "I just think he's a little behind." And I'm like, "You're right. right. You're right." You know, <laughs> right. he. She she was joking about it our last session because we're coming up on the six months meeting, and she said, "He's just not a good test taker." And I think she's probably <laughs> right. He kind yeah. of gets spooked and he performer. shuts down and yeah. doesn't do stuff that he does weekly, you know, right. during a session. So it's just kind of one of those quirky situations where when they when you test him, but when you just sit and play with him, he looks pretty darn good. So Wow. But I'm glad that you've gotten to see that. And it is really good as a therapist to see a kid who's more near normal than you would typically see, and I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings when I'm saying normal. I certainly hope that I don't have moms that are really, um, that their feelings are hurt or if they're offended that I'm using that term, developing within normal limits. And we do, you know, and a lot of times moms do get upset about that because they're so, um, it's so near and dear to their hearts when their own babies are struggling, and so they hear kind of that term and get upset and I understand that I certainly don't want to hurt anyone's feelings but from a therapist perspective and this is where I was going with the grandparent analogy you kind of forget about how easily things come to children who aren't struggling developmentally and we were we had a conversation about this the other day I don't remember what we were talking about I think this is in our real life not on the podcast right when I was saying maybe we were talking about teaching pointing and we were saying And we were comparing that to potty training maybe. I don't know, but we were just saying, isn't that the big marker between kids who are typically developing and those that aren't? Because when you're typically developing, it doesn't take much effort to teach anything. And even though we hear moms kind of rail about things and complain about things, but when when kids are really not struggling developmentally, 
there's not a lot of effort involved in teaching a kid how to talk. It just happens, and there's not a lot. You know, you might have some sleepless nights when you're weaning a kid from a bottle or from a passy, and you might, with potty training, it might, you know, it's not going to happen in a day, regardless of what a book tells you. But at the same time, it's not. It's also not going to take six months or a year either. And with a lot of a lot of our kids with delays, that's a big marker with how hard it is to get them over that next developmental hump. And that's how you know, in my mind anyway, boy, things are not um, developing or it's just not pre-wired to happen with this kid like it should be because when kids are typically developing, it's pretty darn easy. Didn't we have that conversation? We sure did, and we were saying that really that holds true regardless of what skill it is we're referencing, whether it be walking, talking, playing with toys functionally, going to bed, eating, you know, regardless of what it is with, and it seems really basic, but, and you know, Laura, this is something I see a lot so often with families that I work with, and I'm sure you've seen it with your population of kids, but the higher, let's see, the more hands-on, the more focused, the more concerned the mom is, the more likely it is that the mom's going to kind of blame herself yeah. for, for yeah. the issues. And they say things like, well, you know, it's really my fault. I really haven't t- taught him how to point to pictures in books. I really right. haven't taught him how to play with a variety of toys functionally. I haven't really worked on fill in the blank, whatever it is. Right. You know, right. he doesn't eat a wide variety of foods because I haven't really helped him to learn to eat whatever. You know, whatever right. it is. And I always say, really, if there weren't some kind of an issue, you wouldn't have to work on it. You know, That's and absolutely the truth. Yeah. Right, and and. You know, I think that heart always breaks for those mommies because I think it's easier for them in a way, in a sad way, to say it's me, everything would be fine had I done my job better. And really, those moms tend to be very good moms. You know, it doesn't really have anything to do with what mom has done or hasn't done. It really has to do with how the child's developing. And that's sometimes, no, almost always a harder pill to swallow, more difficult uh-huh. to accept. You mean it's something not right with my child? Yeah, at this point, probably that is the case. But they right. frequently say, I didn't. I need to work on that more. I'll fo- and and it, it does help if they'll commit to that. Oh, it certainly do does help, yeah. But yeah. really, if everything were going typically, if that child's development were coming along the way, most kids' development does, then they wouldn't really have to work on it. They'd have they, or if it really truly were something that for some, whatever reason, this kid has never seen a bubble before. Guess what? You show it to them one time, they love it. They try and blow, and they do it. You know, it's right. that simple. And a week later, they re- still remember how to do it. And a month later, even if you have not played with it, guess what? They remember that and know how to do it, and it's not that whole reteaching and refamiliarizing process. They've got it. Their little brains held it there, and you don't have to work your tail off to get them to participate and to pay attention and to want to do it again and again and again. So, yeah, it is a really important marker. And I don't think that we emphasize that nearly enough. And the reason I don't (laughs) is because unless you've parented a kid and know how much – I parented a kid with special needs and with developmental issues, parents of of typically developing kids sometimes talk about things and make things sound a lot harder than they really are. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if they switch places with the mom – who had a kid who's really struggling, they would be shocked and amazed at how hard life is for that mom and for that kid because developmentally, you know, the kid is just really not in the same place as we would hope for them to be. And so, see, that's what I think has happened is because moms of 
typically developing kids sometimes complain about things <laughs> that they really shouldn't be complaining about mm-hmm. and about how hard some things might be and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not minimizing the difficulties of motherhood. Goodness knows I have three children, and, boy, if I if we could go back and play some of my own conversations about my own children, I'm sure I had some of those same thoughts and opinions and feelings, but really, unless you're living that life, you don't know how hard that is. And that's, I mean, that goes either way. Sometimes a mom with a kid who's really um, missing developmental milestones and things are so hard, that's kind of her normal, and she doesn't realize, boy, things should be moving along a lot more quickly than they are. Or your child should be doing things, you know, this should be an easier process for you because that's her normal. That's what she's done for 18 months or two years or whatever, and she just hasn't really realized that things could be any different. This so isn't it's, how, how it always yeah. is. Yeah, particularly if they have limited exposure to other young children or it's their first child. Right. And they just think, well, this is, you know, it's supposed to always be this hard to get them off the bottle and to get them to go to sleep and to get them right. to sit up and right. not usually. Yeah. Right. And then you have that second baby who's typically developing and you go, Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how hard the first one was. I have <laughs> that I, I, I have that happen a lot. I have it going on right now and the little baby, the new baby is only six and a half months. And she, the mom routinely says things like, well, he's already sitting and playing with those toys, you know. And it's right. like, yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. yeah. He's already crawling. He's, you know, it's right. she is just amazed because he's a typically developing kid. But her first child was not, and she didn't know that this is really how easy it usually is. And like right. you said, we, I wouldn't say that, that – um, Raising children, particularly young children, is easy even when they're typically developing. But compared to what it's like with kids who aren't typically developing, it does come, you know, it's easy to say it's easy because it's not all the work and the focus and the concerted effort to get kids to do the simplest of things. And that's my point about the whole thing. And, again, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes and hurting anyone's feelings when I'm talking about that. I'm certainly not going off on mothers who tend to be a little negative and complain about those things. But at the same time, if they were, if they had a different kid with a different set of circumstances, because I've heard, and mothers of kids who are on the spectrum have shared that with me a lot, because they'll say things like, well, my friend says if I would just spank him, he would eat better. My friend says if I would just let him cry it out, a night or two that he would sleep all night. My friend says if I don't give her anything until she asks for it, that she's going to learn how to talk. And I always have to say she does not have the same kid you do, (laughs) and she really has no basis for giving you any kind of credible advice. And so you still be friends with her if you want, but otherwise ignore anything she's telling you because none of that is applicable for you and your child. And that you know, is all kind of relief. Even worse, and I have to say I haven't had this in a while, but years ago when I was working in southern Indiana, there was one particular physical therapist, and I won't name her name, but she would routinely say those things to parents. Well, you just need to set some limits. Well, you just need to, you know, and it, and she was saying it to kids, parents of children who were not, typically developing you know right. they had some very real issues and it was not a matter of the mom simply neglecting to mention they weren't supposed to climb on everything in the room you know i mean right. it was right and she would say things like that and i think now this is pretty bad when we have a therapist telling this poor mother just be a better basically she was saying if you would be a better mother your kid would be doing much better, and it was anything but true. And I used to think that's so right. horrible that a therapist would tell a mom that, you know. I mean, it's embarrassing. Oh. It's embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. It, it kind of is. Yeah. So, anyway. Anyway, yeah. Well, but that, our point is, when things are really, really difficult like that, and when you see a kid that's really, they can't do any of these things, lick their lips, blow bubbles, 
or they don't have that pretend play emerging, and that if you tried to show them that the the block is a car and tried to you know pretend like that and they had no clue what you're doing, those things Dr. Alcock believes are predictive and that we should use these markers to help identify very early on kids who are going to have difficulty learning not only to say words but to understand words because she did find, believe it or not, that there's a big link between receptive language and expressive language. Wow, how (laughs) earth-shattering is that? Okay, here's, you know what, I didn't read on down. Here's how the children were divided. They were divided into four groups, and three. And these were 120 children, aged 21 months. And they were given more detailed tests in motor skills and understanding language and hearing. And they also looked at, they looked at several factors beyond the licking lips, blowing bubbles, and pretend play. Those were the three that were linked to learning language easily. And the the factors that had no links, I don't know if you read this far down in the article, Kate, were walking and running. So, boy, haven't we had our share of kids who were all over the place but who weren't talking yet. Right. That's no surprise at all. No surprise at all. So walking and running were not related at all. And then they also looked at, they call it a wide variety of thinking and reasoning skills, and this would be early cognitive uh, abilities. And the the factors they used or the, (coughs) excuse me, the range of skills they looked at were putting puzzles together, matching, and they matched both pictures and colors, interacting with an adult to get their attention, pretending one object is another, so this is where they got the whole block thing, Um, and their examples were using a block for a car, pretending like a box is a doll's bed, or giving a doll a tea party. And they said children who were good at the cognitive skills were also better at language, but there was no... um, relationship with more general thinking skills such as doing puzzles. So the gesturing and the pretending were linked to language, but doing puzzles and matching were not. And boy, do I agree with that, because sometimes we do have children who have those really distinct strengths in that area with visual matching, yet language-wise they're, they're not so hot. Right, and I think that speaks to the symbolic nature of language and when they're talking about things that are um, somehow symbolic, whether it be using an object in a different way than it's intended, the box is the baby's bed or that kind of thing. That kind of makes sense. If they can do that, it's not a big jump to think they understand that words represent objects or actions or whatever the case may be, that they're representational and something as concrete as matching uh, puzzle pieces really isn't the same type of... Right. It really has nothing to do with particularly expressive language. Now, the the Twitter conversation that I was eavesdropping on, the person said, I don't know how they can really tease out receptive language from cognition when they're 21 months, And I do agree with that because, I mean, we know that. We know that receptive language and cognition are so closely linked. However, just from my personal experience with kids, I've had kids who are great matchers and who I have this one little guy that you've worked with too, Katie's over three, and I'm still kind of seeing him on and off. And he is so significantly affected his his skills he's on the spectrum and i was shocked when he started really matching colors because mm-hmm. developmentally i that's a stretch for him i thought but now he can do it and we're able to use that strength and move on but it has had no bearing whatsoever on his language skills which he's still you know, lower his skills, I would put him lower than a year. And that, you know, 
six months, six months to a year, nine months. That might even be being a little bit generous. But he's learned right. how to do those visual things now. And he's done puzzles for a while. Uh, but again, I've seen that so many times, and that's where parents get really, really fooled because they'll say, oh, he's so smart. And it's not that he's not smart. I'm not saying that. But I've really seen it not have much bearing on language at all in real life. And yet, um, you know, I think it's in my world, and I'm sure it has been in yours, and I'm probably more um, sensitive to it because, you're a DI. Dis- because I'm a DI, yeah. um, right. I get a lot of evaluations back from our primary level people in Kentucky. That's how we work now. We don't do an initial vow. They send in somebody else and they do a broad based assessment. Um, anyway, and they'll, we'll, you know, we get them and it will say language skills or communication skills. Hi, girls. Sorry, <laughs> Laura's leaving. Um, the communication skills are significantly delayed. Say it's 24 months, and they'll put those at 10 months or 12 months right, or right. somewhere. And then they'll turn around and say that the cognitive skills are typical, that they're at age level. And, and I, yeah. I, I always kind of think, how did you get that? You know, because of that I, splinter skill. They'll see one splinter skill in an age group like that, but you want to say, okay, what about the following directions that was mm-hmm. way back, you know, a one-step direction, put the ball in the box down at 12 to 15 months. Well, what about when they're not doing that? How can you not say that that's still a cognitive skill? Because it not that still on the test there? Yes. You? And and I I just think, I don't know if it's that people don't really recognize that or it's just much easier to call it language and not go there with parents right, to say right. cognitively we have some concerns. Right. And I will say that is probably the most difficult thing. To parents are generally, if they're going to have an easier time, not, you know, I mean, we all want our children to be perfect, and there's no easy way to say things aren't really coming along the way they should be, but... The most sensitive of areas is to say that cognitively, you know, that this is right. where, and yet I think oftentimes there is a cognitive component when there's a receptive yeah. language, most often. Right. And I, every once in there's one evaluator who says it, and she's uh-huh. kind of the exception. You know, the other folks say, oh, cognitive skills look good. And yeah. then, like, they're not little, really teasing it out like they should. And I hope no. that those aren't speech pathologists Sometimes that are they not. Are. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes okay. they are. Just that's the way yeah. it goes. That's and I always right. think we'll see. And I once right. I start with them, I think mm, they were putting it. I mean, they still qualify them, and they right. still get services. And so you're still seeing them for DI, yeah. Right. Yeah. You're, well, sometimes right. I'm seeing them for speech. Right. But. You know, in any case, they didn't close the door on them, and that's the most important thing. But I do sometimes think that really, as difficult as it is, it's not necessarily a bad thing for parents to have a pretty decent understanding of what, yeah, right. what's really right. going on with the right. kids. And it's not really just all talking. And I try to really explain that and say, and the, and, and at the same time, give a kid credit for that because, again, we've had kids who, who aren't good matchers and who don't get the whole puzzle thing. And those children, truth be told, have an even more difficult time. But I think mm-hmm. it's a little easier for those parents sometimes to understand that there are cognitive issues, too, that there's a cognitive component because they haven't seen those splinter skills right. and haven't... <laughs> Excuse me. They, it's just a, they're just a little bit more realistic because they've they already know in their heart of hearts. Oh my goodness, he can't do that. Oh, he's not learning. And mm-hmm. the and the other parents with kids with those visual splinter skills, and that's how I explain it. I say, and I know I've used this example on the show before. Yes, he's got some things that are above but he's got a lot of things missing that are below. And when we're thinking about language and cognition, 
We want to build a solid foundation. So when you have things that are a lot of things that are all over the place, when you have some skills up here but you're missing some components below, that's not a very stable foundation. So no wonder he's struggling like he is because he's missing all of these skills. And that does seem to help parents understand it. And you can use those things and you can build upon a child's strengths. And I never want to discount that or make a parent feel like, gosh, I thought that was good. Why aren't you giving him credit for that? And I think so many times parents have children with delays feel like therapists, you know, don't recognize the good enough. Right. So we do want to use that, but we really want to explain what those are and how there still can be cognitive concerns even if we're seeing some strengths in other areas. And more often than not, it does tend to be that little visual piece that they're excelling in Mm -hmm. and then missing some other skills. They can match colors. They can do puzzles. Sometimes they, they can operate the ABC things. Yeah. Yeah. Operate the remote or the VCR or the you know program that somehow they can get the DVD player to work better than mom. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, mom will say, "How? How are you telling me that he does not understand words when he can do this?" And you have to really talk about that. That's a separate system. And really give some very concrete examples because so many times mom will say, it's not that he doesn't understand language, he just doesn't want to mind me. He just doesn't want to follow that direction. He just doesn't want to follow commands. And so, again, you have to do such a good job of separating that out and helping mom understand it. So that she, The main reason is so that she gets on board and will work on the things that she should be working on and fill in the foundational gaps so that a kid can begin to move forward. So that we've talked about splinter skills before, but I, I think it's really important here. And I, I like that the study said that those skills <laughs> seem to have no relationship to what kids were flourishing at 21 months with language and what kids were floundering at 21 months with language. So I like that there's a study that kind of teases that out. And we can use that uh, to rely on. And another thing, another very predictive uh, factor in uh, how well a child was doing with language at 21 months was in his ability to imitate a a word so that mom could say to him, say, ball, and he would repeat that. And so naturally, you know, this is a big uh, moment too, the kids who could do that (laughs) were better at learning language than kids who could not do that. And so, again, that imitation piece, you know, that information is present in nearly every study that we look at and in books that we read about language development and in just every kind of theory that we would explore about language development. But yet lots of therapists miss that piece and that imitation is huge, and kids have to learn how to do it, and no way is a kid going to be ready to use a lot of words spontaneously until he's a really good imitator of words, and he's probably not going to imitate a lot of words until you've heard him imitate some kind of prerequisites, and that would include actions and gestures and even those exclamatory words or those little vocalizations like play sounds or animal sounds. And usually when you're looking at a kid's history, even if he's not saying a lot of, if he's vocal but he's not saying a lot of words yet, those are the kinds of things that you're going to hear that he can do. He's got a car noise. He tries to do quack quack or some version of that for the duck. Or he does a mmm, you know, for even a meow. Even if it's off target, he's still vocal before you hear lots of words. And that that is true. That sequence holds true whether a kid talks on time or whether he's delayed. And so that imitation piece and looking at all those prerequisite things that happen before a kid really talks, I mean, we should know that. We should own that information as early interventionists, and we should take advantage of that, and we should plan that, and we should build those steps into our treatment plans too, but so many people skip it and go straight to, he will use words spontaneously 
and they go into what's this, what's that, what's this, and really expect a child to somehow pull that word out of thin air when they've never heard a kid imitate a word in any context. And so it's it's amazing to me when you go back and really start to dig into the research and reread your textbooks and read all that. The information is there, but we do not apply it like it should be applied. So I'm hoping that that will be our mark on this field, Kate, is that we can help people do what they already know. Because when you read a study like this and you hear, oh, my goodness, yeah, a kid has to be able to imitate mouse movements. Oh, my goodness, yeah, a kid has to understand how to use an object like blowing bubbles. Oh, my goodness, yeah, a kid has to get that whole symbolic piece. I mean, we should already know that and be using that, but a lot of us don't. So I hope we can change some of that. And unfortunately, yeah. the therapists who don't know it probably aren't listening to the show. Probably not. <laughs> yes, we're preaching to the choir, I'm afraid. But, uh, yeah, it's often missed. I do think that um, if people implemented this more, there wouldn't be kids sitting out there who weren't making progress for, for six or eight or ten months. You know, they right. just go. And it kind of speaks to that. You can't really take a kid who doesn't understand how to use everyday objects in a functional way, whether it be with a baby doll or with herself, and teach her how to how to engage in pretend play because you've set the bar so high that right. you, you've totally missed her. And it's the same thing on language. If you don't meet them somewhere close to where they are, uh-huh. right. you're really not going to bump them up anytime soon. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's so important, and therapists do. And a lot of therapists, I mean, and I've used this example, <coughs> excuse me, before on the show as well, too. They'll sit through the conference, and they'll and I, you know, really preach the whole social engagement, receptive language. <coughs> excuse me, these are our foundational pieces. We have to get this first. We have to focus on this. These need to be your goals. And somebody will raise their hand and say, well, what do you do when a parent doesn't want to work on that? I can't work on something that a parent doesn't want me to work on. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to shake them and say, you are working on that. Because until a child can socially engage and until a child can learn to understand what words mean and follow some directions and link some meanings, he's not ready to talk. And so, again, if a professional doesn't get it, someone who already has a degree that some institution already signed off on, that they were competent, (laughs) if they don't get it, how is a mom supposed to get it? Who doesn't have a degree in early childhood education or speech-language pathology or communication disorders or, you know, occupational therapy, whatever, you know, her degree is in accounting or she has a 10th grade education, you know, how she's supposed to get it if we have therapists who miss this. And again, some of this information I think is really somehow must be stored within the deep recesses of their brains. <laughs> it has to be there, but we're not applying it like we, not everybody's applying it like we should, so... I'm hoping that we can help change that. And if you're a therapist listening to this and you're thinking about uh, your peers and your colleagues who aren't really getting that, you know, you can really make a career out of being the expert where you live and the go-to person where you live and the person that everybody just admires and looks up to and, you know, people say she's so wonderful. That can be you. And a lot of that starts with teaching people who are around you and not in a non you know, in a combative, threatening way, but just really in your everyday conversations that you have, in your IFSP meetings where someone's talking about, Well, we need to get them talking and you're sitting there thinking, Are you kidding me? He doesn't understand a word I'm saying. Are you kidding me? I can't get social engagement. That's where you jump in and you talk about these things and you educate even the other people on your teams and that's how you get to be the go to person that your expert in your town that that's how you turn into that is by really 
using those opportunities to teach other people in addition to parents. And sometimes young therapists get intimidated and don't want to do it. Some of us who've worked a while get so jaded (laughs) that we don't do it. Some of us naturally kind of can jump in and do that without feeling like it's that you're stepping on toes or that you're calling people out. I mean, I know that that comes easier to some people than it does others, but as as professionals who get this and who understand it, it's part of our responsibility to be teaching other people that are within your realm of influence. And I hope that on this show, these conversations that we have, Kate, that people can, and I know people do this because they tell me, they'll say, I I went back and listened to this show and I tried to memorize what you said <laughs> so that I could explain it that way. Or people have said that they you know, read part of the therapy manual again so that they knew how to explain it. And I, I just, I think that's huge. I think it's huge. And I do think it's hard for some people to know how to do, though. Right. And, you know, Laura, I'm always up front about saying, I don't think it's necessarily one of my strengths. I think I've gotten better at it, and I'm certainly Oh, you're a pro. Well, but having your nice, sweet southern draw makes it sound a little nicer somehow when you're sharing these things with other people. And um, my northern tendencies sometimes are more abrasive, and it's a little harder. But I will say I think... From my perspective, yes, I totally agree that it's best if everybody on the team, all providers, that is, get the general basis of why you're doing what you're doing and what the foundation of their sessions, whether they're OT, PT, speech, DI, psychology, whatever. Um, But I think probably the most important thing is that parents really understand it, at least to the extent that they get the reason we teach him to play functionally, the reason we want him to engage socially, the reason receptive skills are so terribly important, because all of that feeds into talking, which for so many parents is the desired end result. And I totally get that. Right. You know, I get that. They want their child to call him mommy. They want to hear I love you. They want to hear bye-bye. You know, all those early first things that we all wait anxiously to have pop out of our little angel's mouth but once they really get you know we've got to focus here in order to get there once they really understand that i think it's much easier to get them to commit to really doing the hard work that it sometimes takes to get them there I agree. because otherwise it seems like well you know they don't really necessarily care as much about all those other prerequisite skills. They just want them to talk, and they can accept that they're not the most social kids or that they don't play functionally particularly well or that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But once they get it, then when they know all that has to be in place before he's really going to be a talker, then you have a captive audience. Then you have a parent committed to doing the things. And it may mean lots and lots of work. And we acknowledged Mm -hmm. in the beginning of this show that, Typically, it doesn't take a lot of work. It's easy. Right. And we know that in situations where kids are delayed, it's 99.999% of the time not what the parents did or didn't do. Exactly. It's where that, it's where that kid is. Uh-huh. And, Laura, and it's- behind the scenes, you and I will joke sometimes about, and this is true particularly for me because I've services this population probably more in the past I've been in situations where I think that it is a miracle that this kid is doing as well as he is because he gets very little attention. You know, there's right. sensory deprivation all the time. You know, it's right. basically it's a situation of neglect, and those kids are still doing well, which really right. just tells you that typically developing kids are like little sponges. They absorb right. it. Even if they don't right. get much exposure to it, they absorb it. So, you know, conversely, kids in great situations sometimes just don't absorb it. And it really has everything to do with what's going on with the kid and not what's going on with the parents or what the parents are or aren't doing. It just is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. But it may take tons of work um, 
you know, on the therapist's part, but most importantly on the parents' part because they're the ones who are there day in and day out. And if they're not committed and they're not targeting the right skills or the right activities, then it's going to take a heck of a lot longer. So when you make that difficult uh, subject known and really they really understand it and buy in, they're going to do what they need to do to get them there. So exactly, it is hard. I mean, it, you know, it is hard, say, but it needs to be but said. It does need to be said. And that's not to say, too, and I think sometimes when we say this, we're not saying that parents can't make a huge difference. They can and they do. But are they the re- sole reason the kid is behind? Absolutely not. And we've done entire shows devoted to just that, haven't we? <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think you said that beautifully. And we we do have to, even more importantly than getting your helping educate the professionals you work with, are making sure that parents on your caseload understand that every single thing you do is tied to talking. And when you can tie every activity, every goal, every minute of your intervention with a parent to this is important and this is how it leads to talking, that's when they sit up and take notice and pay more attention and value your recommendations and your strategies. You're going to get better follow-through because they understand what the heck you're doing. It doesn't look like you're just coming into play. And so you have to really make those dots, uh, connect those dots and help parents make those connections or they don't automatically know. And I still think that you should do a good job of educating them therapists on your teams too (laughs) so that everybody gets it so that you don't have an OT say to a mom well he's two and a half and he's still not talking you know so that they understand what's going on and they and again you can accomplish that you can do better with it I mean I've heard people I can sit and think especially really early on um, with therapists who I liked and admired, who I heard say different things, and I would think, oh, my gosh, that is a great way to explain that. Or that is that was a great example. I'm going to remember that. And so you can be that person in your area and in your team. And naturally, Kate, I think the, the therapists who listen to this show are already a cut above because they're trying and uh, using their free time to um, educate themselves and really learn their crafts and sharpen their clinical skills. And so I think every therapist listening has the potential to be that person in her hometown um, and, and really do that for people. And so I hope that we can we can help some therapists do that and give them things to say and what to hold on to. Okay, I'm going to close the show with saying this article from Science Daily. I've linked it on teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page if you <laughs> excuse me, want to take a look at that yourself. And so the take-home information for this article is if a kid is not imitating you and imitating some facial movements, if a kid doesn't seem to have pretty good oral motor control, if a kid isn't developing cognitively, He's not going to talk on time. And so informally, you can start kind of using that and looking at that with children on your caseload. Your work is cut out for you if a kid can't do any of those things. And for those kids especially, when they don't have those foundations there, when they're not looking at you well enough to imitate, when... Their little mouths, they have no concept that, boy, I can make my lips and my tongue do this. When they don't remember what a bubble wand is other than I'm going to eat it. When there's no play going on, again, no, oh, my goodness, it's going to be a while. I better talk to his mom and get her really on board with we're not going to hear words next week. This is going to be a longer process. These skills are predictive and We've got to dig in and do the right things so that talking does become a realistic goal. So I just wanted to be sure that we summarized with that very um, blunt explanation of 
how we use this information from this study. Because it's nice to read a study and talk about a study, but if we can't apply that and take that knowledge and really know how to use it, it's not really worth the paper it's written on, then is it? Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you have parting words? Kate, I think you did a great eloquent parting word a minute ago, and now I've gone and kind of added my two cents worth in there. Well, if you feel that way, I'll leave it there. Far be it for me to try and top that, if that's how you feel about it. Yeah, and if you're not sure what I'm talking about, rewind five minutes or so so you can hear Kate's You Have to Get the Parents on Board uh, because it's super, super, super important. All right, next week we're going to be talking about what we talked about at the beginning of last week's show. What are some different ideas that we can do with kids, maybe kids that you've seen for a while, kids that are older, kids who feel like been there, done that, when you you drag you and your old bag of toys in the house and they're pretty much sick of you and everything else you have that you normally bring. What are some new ideas or some different twists uh, that we can introducing therapy sessions and I've had some personal experience with this with a little girl who's given me a run me and her mom a run for our money and so it'll that's what we're going to talk about next week sounds good I'm sure I I have a little boy right now where I could use a few pointers on what will work that sounds good we're going to pull it together for next week all right okay Okay. bye bye 